yes. Hey, everybody. This is the Keystone Cops edition of <laughs> of Tech Chat Tuesdays. Uh, I'm Ken Rimple, and we have with us today Eric Snyder. Say hi, Eric. Yes. And uh, we have Sujan Kapati, who uh, wanted to be a glutton for punishment and come back another week. <laughs> so in, in the comedy of errors department, this is kind of funny. I'm driving my way in here and uh, in the chariot, and I decided I would come in today. So I kind of leisurely walked into the car, closed the car door, drove all the way in here, got a big coffee. You have to have big coffee. And then I got out, and I'm like, no laptop. So I left my laptop at home. So Sujan is on his phone because he was kind enough to lend me his phone so he could, or his computer, so I could be online on my computer. So comedy of errors. Big coffee is evil. Support your local roasters. There you go. I agree with you on that, actually. I just was in a hurry. All right. Well, anyway, so there's been a lot of interesting things going on in the week of tech. But before we start, let's just say a quick hi to Eric. Eric has been on my podcast uh, along with Sujan over the years and used to do our development news with me for a long time. But Eric, why don't you tell the people who are new to this through the Tech Chat Tuesdays who you are and what you do? <laughs> well, uh, my name is Eric <laughs> Snyder. I've been with Chariot. This is my second tour of duty with Chariot. Uh, second time around, I think, six years now. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I'm a consultant, so I'm at a, uh, I guess I can't say what client I'm at, but uh, doing a lot of really interesting work, uh, a lot of uh, big data work uh, previously, and now currently a lot of uh, a lot of microservice uh, work in Golang. So it's, it's a good time. Awesome. All right. Uh, and so we have a couple of things to talk about. The first thing I want to talk about is a tech review. I got one of these. I got the iPhone mini. And I got to say, it doesn't really line up here. Here we go. Uh, I got to say that uh, from an iPhone 12 perspective, it is a very, very fast machine. Um, The cameras are the same cameras you get in the Pro. Minus, uh, there's a few minor little things. I think the photo sensors for the Pro Max are bigger. So in low, low light, it would probably do a little bit better. But it's equally as fast. The, The thing that everyone is saying about it is the battery life is a little lower. Um, so you can, you know, need to charge it at some point during the day. But what I found was it fa- it charges really, really quickly. Um, so it's like the perfect photographer camera for going around and messing around and doing lots of uh, wide angle and ultra wide angle shots. So um, I have the evil twin to that, the Pixel 4a. Yeah. What do you which, think of it? Uh, I love it. It's fantastic. The only big negative to it is it's not waterproof. And, I, you know, I guess they have to compromise somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and the back is plastic. It's not metal. So Feels a little cheaper, but the camera's fantastic. Everything about it, I love it. Mm-hmm. I have a Pixel 3a, which I'm actually using right now for the streaming. Um, Thank you, John. <laughs> I can't complain about it. It's not waterproof is my main gripe with it. I don't care whether it's glass or plastic on the back. Um, it's a good phone. The The camera, even for a phone of that age, still is really, really good. And, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the software as well. But um, I haven't had any issues with it. And I got it for a really, really cheap price, so. Cool. All right. Apple apps on Big Sur bypass firewalls and VPNs. <laughs> this is terrible. This is really terrible. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but no, no, they really, really, really care about your privacy. This is the next web. Uh, who's the reporter on this? I don't know. Uh, Colum, uh, Callum Booth. Uh, and so and apparently I'm playing video. Uh, so the bottom line is the, that when they connect up, uh, the Apple apps themselves can actually connect up and, and talk to uh, mothership without going through your firewall and VPN. Uh, and so that's not good. They actually knew about this since October. (laughs) 
some Apple apps bypass some network extensions, says uh, Maxwell on Twitter, and VPN apps. This is back on October 19th. Maps, for example, can directly access the internet by bypassing any any filter data provider or any app proxy providers you have running. So yeah, that, that seems like that could be an issue. Now, so before they had a network kernel extension, um, you know, I guess now they've deprecated these kernel extensions, uh, the network kernel extensions. Now they have network extensions, but they probably don't go through the kernel, meaning that they can go through the, what they want to do. I, um, I am thinking, my guess is that these are largely not malicious or deliberate. These are, yeah. uh, these are Jira tickets somewhere right now. Someone's going to some. eventually address it. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Be my guess. Are they all hitting the same URL or endpoint, or is it just anything that the Mac needs? Because you know, I know people have been like modifying their Etsy host file to specifically point those URLs to one twenty seven zero zero one, so they don't actually go anywhere. I don't know, but I do know that when you first fire up uh, Big Sur. And you, uh, when, when people were first installing Big Sur and they were activating their apps, there's a checking home to make sure an app is is a valid application. Um, they have some sort of checksum or something they, they check for. Uh, and that hung up a whole bunch of people, not only on Big Sur, but other yeah. Apple users, because they flooded the, the app. And instead of it returning that it was busy and giving it like a 500 error or something like that, it didn't return at all. And all these users were hanging. Well, so I think part of the, part that's of a the, different I, issue, but it's you know similar. Yeah, go ahead. I, I had heard that uh, part of the issue was you, they weren't necessarily getting 500s. Mm -hmm. It's just that there was a high, high, the latency was really high. Right, they didn't get an answer. Right. They didn't, well, I mean, I think if, I think some of those requests would come back eventually. The problem is the latency was so bad on some of these requests. And the fact that a Big Sur deployment hosed everybody, not just yeah. Big Sur. Yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, that's that's a bad. Really it was a volume bad. issue and tuning yeah. on their cloud infrastructure. Yeah, so that's not the same thing. I don't want to conflate the two issues, but yeah, um, they do talk home a lot more than you probably would think they do. You know, because well, it, sounds, were... it sounds like somebody forgot to turn on a cache somewhere. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Becca, can you uh, do me a favor and throw the rest of them in there real quick? Uh, so yeah, so that's an interesting little problem. Uh, in terms of. Uh, Big Sur, though, I've been running Big Sur for the last uh, couple of hours, and overall, I find it to be a little, I wouldn't say it's zippier. I know someone was doing a benchmark out there on the web in the earlier betas, and they were seeing it being a little slower for a lot of operations. I didn't see that, but it certainly wasn't slow for me. Um, it's kind of a nice operating system to work with. I like the the redesign. So, I don't know. So, yeah, what do you think too. about it? Uh, I like it. It just seems, you know, it's an awfully long update, as they all usually are, mm -hmm. this one more than most. And, you know, the, to me, it's just not enough of a change for it to almost be worth it. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some things are visually a little more appealing for sure. But eh, I'm underwhelmed, I should say. A lot yeah. of the changes are really are uh, have, pertain to Apple's own apps, which I don't care about at all. I don't, I don't use a single Apple app. So you know, a lot of it's wasted on me, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. All right. I, I'm back and decided to unceremoniously die on me. So, you know, I can't, I can't really say whether that's going to happen again or not. We'll see. Okay. All right. All right. Can we throw you in then? Uh, I'm still sure. kind of working through some of the articles, but here's another one, which is uh, let's talk a bit about what YouTube DL is. And apparently it was uh, taken down by a takedown request, right? Yeah. So actually I didn't even know about YouTube DL. It was interesting. Um, 
but it's basically, I think it's based on Python, but um, it allows you, it has a huge number of options to download uh, videos from YouTube videos and music um, of all sorts of formats and, and different things like that. But apparently the Record Industry Association of America found out about it and said it violated a bunch of copyright things like that. And they had the repository brought down. Um, obviously, and a, lo a lot of people were upset about that, including GitHub CEO, Nat Friedman and staff and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and GitHub basically got together, did their research and, and fought back on that and said it's actually not violating the terms and they won. And they were able to, and I don't know one meaning whether that's like a, a legal conclusion, like, okay, they won or it's just like still in the bowels of the legal process. And in, in the meantime, they're able to bring it back. I don't know. I'm sure the uh, Record Industry Association will will somehow figure out a way to win at some point. But anyway, um, that repository is now back up on GitHub and GitHub and I guess some other uh, organizations have established a $1 million defense fund for open source developers when they need to litigate against institutions like the you know Record Industry Association. It seems so, like they really are trying here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the DMCA, it's almost like, uh, you know, especially in this case, it's like guilty until proven innocent, right? Yeah. So they ha they're forced to take down these repos and then sort of do the research. Uh, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool that, you know, this happened and there's a defense fund. And I didn't even, I didn't even know about this facility, so I'm going to look at it. It looks interesting. I know that, you know, certainly for companies like ours, where we put a lot of things up on YouTube, if you want to archive things, it just have a good permanent yeah. backup of something just so you have a video or, or if you want to take that video and publish it on Vimeo or some other service now, that would be easier to do. If somehow you lost the originals, you know, you could still get the, yeah. I mean, and there's, so for me, it's like, there's a lot, there's so much great educational content on YouTube yeah. from people that really know their stuff and they know how to present and you can understand them. One guy, the engineer guy, he's like this uh, chemical engineer professor from Chicago, but he breaks down things really, really well. He has an awesome video on how excel phone accelerometers work. Ooh. Another, another really interesting video just on music, like all the all the technology or innovations in the 18th century behind music boxes and how they were made. Oh, that's anyway, cool. Yeah, there's stuff, stuff like that out there that I worry because you know Google's policies or any large company's policies. Are, you know, arbitrary or it can change. And then if, if there could be good content that goes away. So to me, a utility like this, allowing me to save off stuff and not be, not be uh, vulnerable to a large company's policies is nice. I can see the, the one point that Google might have, which is that if you, if you uh, pay for Google plus, which is what I have, you can save and download content to play locally. Um, and so like, if you have like an iPad or something, you or probably an Android device and using the, the, uh, YouTube app, you can click things that you want and then download them. And then you can take them. Remember planes, <laughs> you could take it on the plane and watch it in a trip or something or watch it at home without a connection. Um, so that's probably one potential reason that might've gotten some ire from, from them. And then of course you've got the, the, uh, RIAA looking at that saying, well, people can, my gosh, people can take music. They're watching it anyway. So, yeah, the DMC is a, a rough law, you know. <laughs> I just I just had flashbacks to, I mean, just, I'm showing my age, but uh, well, VCRs, right? Mm -hmm. It was a, you know, the lawsuits around VCRs when they first. Started. What's a VCR? I'm just kidding. Keep going. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> a lot of people that listen to this aren't going to know. Um, but yeah, 
you know, we, we can't actually, uh, you know, record this for personal enjoyment and use later. So. Right. 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 Yep. It's like taking the, taking the label off that mattress and you're going to go to jail. You know, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, so that's interesting. I'll have to check out YouTube, uh, YouTube DL. I use it for a lot of music stuff. So like I, I have a lot of music lessons that I, you know, keep techniques from people and be nice to actually have them somewhere. Hmm. All right. I'm going to throw us over to Vue.js for a little bit. Um, Vue has, it's kind of the darling at the moment of uh, uh, new frameworks. It's shiny, you know, so therefore lots of us are looking at it and paying attention to it. It seems to be making inroads in some of the enterprises we work with. Not everywhere, but it's starting. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, as I mentioned in other uh, episodes, it's it's kind of a um, analog to, to like uh, single page applications like React or Angular, but it's uh, written by a guy named Evan Yu. Um, that was the, the main creator of it. And Vue has gone through three major versions. And in the third version, they've looked at what, and they all jump, you know, jump over each other and leapfrog each other. But uh, they looked at what React did, for example, and they said, you know, we see these functional components. Uh, and so, uh, and, and the, the concept of hooks and reactivity um, you know, for, you know, only reacting when a small piece of the information changes and just re reloading that one little piece. Uh, and so there's a really interesting article. I've not gone as deep into it as I'd like, but it's on my list of things to review. And so maybe you'll find this useful on-demand reactivity in Vue 3. Uh, and so uh, Luca Mykik, I believe is his name, uh, has a top article on this. Uh, and he, you know, kind of goes over like a, 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 a Vue component that has some state in it uh, and then goes through some, you know, uh, concepts of uh, mixing in reactivity or uh, uh, I guess this is really the, the whole hooks concept, but uh, he goes through uh, code reuse with this thing. So for example, there are functions out there in view where uh, you can make a reference to something uh, and I'm trying to highlight, but my mouse is not playing nicely. So you have these concepts of references and you can, you can you can update the value that's held in a reference and have it uh, automatically redraw that particular item. Um, but if you're curious about how Vue three handles reactivity, this is uh, an example of one of those. Uh, I'm going to jump to the example itself because uh, I think that's probably the thing that people would want to see. Someone, uh, what this guy put together is a component in Vue. So here's the. Uh, gist of the component in Vue 3. And if you haven't looked at Vue before, uh, there's these single page view components. And what they're single file view components, what they have is a template section, which is pure markup, a script section, which is your JavaScript, and then a styles section at the bottom, which is your CSS or less or whatever uh, SAS uh, styles or modular styles. So in one file, you have all these things. The first thought you might have is, ew, now I've got to have an editor that supports all three of those types in one file. There are plugins to all the major editors now where like Vueter, I think, is the one for Visual Studio Code. And there's a, a Vue 3 plugin for, uh, for IntelliJ. And they will do direct editing of the type of things. So you get code filling for the script. You get CSS completion in the style section. And you get uh, templates in that. That's not Vue 3. That's just been around in Vue for a while. But you'll see that we've got this, this view template markup, and the markup looks similar to other uh, single-page apps, like the double curly braces for things that get emitted, and you've got special attributes for things like loops uh, and you know special attributes for properties that are injected. 
so that's interesting uh at at and then your event so all this is just standard view stuff conditionals uh here is like the example of a reference so this this piece of information here is an input that's fed from some reactive equation uh input i dash j variable i think it is um and then uh it's using a particular model to pull that information in and what he's doing here is building a spreadsheet so let me bring the spreadsheet itself up and the cool thing is for this particular blog entry he gave you a running um what is this code pen right so you get this uh Now, it's not a full spread. It's not a fully uh, functional spreadsheet, but it gives you an idea of the kind of thing you can get away with. Because almost every project I've run into, the first question out of them in a single page app is, "Well, we'd like this thing to look like Excel, <laughs> right?" And you're like, "Well, you know, a JavaScript front end is not Excel, you know." Um, and so you try to back off, for example, of, of a completely crazy Excel to a reasonable grid. Um, but you know, you've got a lot of interactivity people want these days. So this sample here that I'll post in here has an example of, so in the in the component here, um, you've got kind of a, I guess I and J is like your X and Y coordinates. Um, you know, you've got methods that they use. So for example, there's a, a method that uh, is, as you're entering things, gets the reference to the current DOM input node. So it looks like they he's identifying every single cell with a unique identifier based on the, you know, row and column position. Uh, and then he's, you know, communicating and making changes just to that cell. So you can see how he does it. Um, but the bottom line is that, uh, you know, this is an example of a uh, using the reactive function. And let's take a look at that. So the reactive function. Um, and let's see where the import for reactive is. Yeah. So reactive is the functions he's using from view to make that particular cell that he's building, something that can automatically get updated atomically in the front end without redrawing the entire tree. I won't go through all the code, but just gives you an idea of some of the things you'd, you'd use in here. So you see this reactive thing in here um, and you have a reactive, uh, you know, raw and computed values um, and then, you know, various functions to map over things. So interesting stuff to look at for later. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. So what is your, of the three major players, right? View sort of seems like the third party at this point. Yeah, yeah, so it's definitely the new is it, one. Well, so it, I kind of get the, not being really in that world myself for, I guess, several years now, is it like the more approachable of the three, the one with the, or no? Is that just a, a false opinion? No, it's not a false opinion. I think it's 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 just different. It's like the McDonald's hamburger versus the Burger King versus the Wendy's, uh, okay. in a way to me. They're just three different approaches. So Angular is still the enterprise choice where you you need a framework to do eighty percent of it, and you everything's baked in. You got the data yeah. baked in, reactivity built in, all the other stuff is built in. Um, state management, AJAX, um, React is such a small core to get started with. You do have to do a little more, but I still think React, there's such a huge base of people doing React that it's kind of hard to argue you out of it. Um, the only downside with React is that there's a lot of choices you have to make for almost every piece of React. Vue is a little more like Angular, but I find when I was learning it and, and hacking around with uh, version two, which is what I'm most familiar with, it's just like you learn the same concepts that you learned in Angular. Now you have a different syntax for them. 
Um, so like, for example, they do have a state machine like the react world. They have a state machine called Vuex. Okay. So Vuex is like MobX in the react world, which is an alternative state machine to redux, very similar concepts. Um, it doesn't require everything to be immutable. Um, but now that they've added things like, um, these, these hooks, you can, you can use state and use context just like you couldn't react. And so you can actually make your own Redux-ish kind of state machine if you want to, and not even use Vue X anymore. Okay. Um, so you know you, you could you could do a lot of things with Vue that you could do in either or the other two. It's just it's a smaller group of people that know it is the thing that would be a, a question mark for me. Um, and it does feel like it's just its own world, like the other two are. So I know that's not a great answer, but if is someone getting, came, is, with each version, and I, they're adding more functionality like hooks, is it starting to? like converge into what angular and react looks like, or do you think it's going to go that route? I think it's still going to be more like react. Oh, thanks. Um, it's, it's going to be more like react in that it's, it's going to still stay pretty modular. Um, you know, you, you still have to use other libraries like react does to get things done. I don't believe it has an Ajax API. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't. You have to use like fetch or something or Axios. So it's got the mentality of a React where it's smaller and modular. In fact, because Evan left the Angular JS team at the time uh, to build this because he saw where they were going with Angular, the earlier version. He said, oh, this is too huge and you know, too large and too all-encompassing. I want to kind of rebuild Angular from the, from the ground up. And that's why he created Vue. So it's leaner. Um, it's more, more in that vein. It's more in the React vein than it is the Angular vein. It's not a be-all, end-all framework. So it seems like we do have some people looking at it and some customers. We I know there's a couple of companies in Philly that are kind of pretty heavily betting on Vue, um, but there it was early days about a year ago when I heard that. So I'd be curious to see what they're thinking today. If you are a company, speaking of, let's talk about uh, interacting with us here. So if you're a company using Vue in production today or you're working on an app for production today, we'd love to hear from you. So you can, you know, you can tweet and use at TechCast. Uh, and, you know, kind of, you know, communicate with us that way. We'd love to hear from you. A couple uh, of our also, clients do use Vue. I can't get into details here, but yeah. Yeah. It's gaining popularity. Um, and I think that single file thing, although it's kind of weird looking, uh, it's kind of useful having everything in one place to look at. You could do the same thing with Angular and have the template embedded. Um when it gets larger, you don't normally do that with an Angular app because like the larger template really should be in its own file so it doesn't clutter up the, the code. But I don't think you really have that option with a single file component as much. You'd have to break it up into multiple files again. So um, yeah, I don't have a ton of like real world experience in a production view app. So I wish I, I had more to say. But if you do out there, please let us know. Again, yeah, hit us up at, at TechCast or there's also TechCast feedback at chariotsolutions.com if you want to email us that way. We'd love to hear from you or post a comment here on the YouTube uh, channel. We'd, we'd uh, have that up in our archived uh, items. I found that it's very difficult to be a part-time uh, SPA, you know, for gut person, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, if you, I got started on React, the initial implementation, and I loved it, fit my brain. Everything was nice. Components made sense to me. And then I came back to it two years later and it just made me so angry. Not because, <laughs> not because, just because it's like, I can't, rec I don't recognize anything anymore. You know, right. And what, that what happens this every do? time. Yeah. Every time I dive back in, like it's like every six, seven months. You're the Michael Corleone like, of the uh, single page yeah. apps. Every time I get out, they bring me right back in with new syntax. <laughs> I'm like, I, just come <laughs> on people, just chill. 
you know it moves too fast like view three it is it radically different in the way it does some things than view two was i would say that you could probably still run a fair I, i'm gonna make a statement that's probably wrong so be prepared you could probably do some view two type of syntax but to get the advantages out of it kind of like we're going react functional you kind of have to write the code that way um so you know as it evolves, you have to keep track of it. That's that's a fair statement. The one that doesn't do that as much as Angular it takes a number of versions of Angular to really change the paradigm. And they're more okay. like Java in that they don't really remove anything unless they give you a big warning in advance. So it makes sense considering who they're they're the enterprise. Are. Yeah. yeah, the enterprise. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. All right. So that's like my little thing on view. Uh, you're right. It's hard to be a part-time thing. I've been doing so much with the cloud lately that like going back to this stuff, I'm like. Oh yeah, it, it, I I can I I call that like that whole front end thing a stack unto itself. It is. It absolutely is. It's it's its own world of complexity and build techniques and design implementations. Like, how am I going to do my styles? I, I think for for most companies and most apps I've seen, they they fall within like you know a small subset of categories or classes of types of apps where I feel like. To have to like learn React or Angular View is great for customizing things and and doing one-offs or things that are not you can't abstract well. But for other things, if there's like pre-made widget tool, you know SDKs or toolkits, things that have already been styled to a certain degree or themable, but provide you all the components out of the box, I feel like for a lot of larger enterprise companies, like that's probably a better route. There's obviously drawbacks with that too. With like, okay, you have to make sure that vendor of that framework is going to be around and maintain and support it and things like that. But I think for a lot of, a lot of larger companies, a complexity with like doing it from scratch. Yeah. Is not too much. And, and you know, like if you look at material, for example, I'm not a giant fan of the material design personally, but um, it is one of those things where you can, you can grab a material and there's a version of that. You can, you can tell your angular app, Hey, install the material UI, give me all the widgets and you're off and running. Um, that's why the enterprises like this kind of stuff because you could say, okay, I want to pull a panel up and I want to make this grid layout and I want to place this chooser over here and do this over there and I want I want toast messages coming up, and you can use Angular plus the Material library to get started. And I know there's there's things like that out in the React world too, and I think there's a, a couple coming out with Vue. But yeah, definitely if you're a development team and you have no, you know, like large investment in design, you're going to want to pick things like that and and reuse things that the people are looking at. The challenge there is picking something that's going to stick around and be stable for a while, you know? So these are all decisions that you need to make by, you know, and talk to a lot of people and, and get their buy-in and do research on whether the library is going to stick around. You know, it's the typical thing, right? With open source, how many committers are there? How popular is it? How stable is it? Does it do regular releases? Does it clear off its queue of bugs? Does it close? My, my favorite one now is they close the bugs right away because you haven't communicated in a week like oh it's not a bug well it's still a bug you just haven't you know gone back and forth to address it so that's one of my favorite uh github tricks these days hey Susan, you look like you're been sucked into a black hole i thought it was a it was level or blinds but i think it's he's uh, multi a uh, can you guys not see me at all at this point or you are cut up into diagonal slightly diagonal segments oh yes. <laughs> you're near a black hole right oh am i like max headroom you are yeah, a little bit yeah Oh, that'd be awesome. Um, how about now? Nope. Not uh, much better. Nope. Oh, great. Becca, can, right, you, cool, can you remove and add him, Becca? See if it works. Just remove. Yeah, here we go. He's gone. He's nope. back. Oh, it's him. All right. Well, let's let's keep mobile suja. I like mobile. Oh, you guys can hear me. That that's good enough. That's right. Okay. That's right. It's close enough for jazz, man. Yeah. 
Um, I thought this would be fun for for since we have Eric on the show here. Uh, let me oh, throw God. this at After my Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know that this is the best article or not on this. I don't want to criticize it. I just want to bring it up. Um, some of the unexpected Python pitfalls. I know you do a lot of Python or have done a lot of Python in the past. Yeah. Um, you would still say you're doing a lot of Python, right? Um, I, I'd say I'm doing uh no, not a lot, no. But but oh, I have. Okay. Hey, guess what? Never mind. I can't get it because I am not logged in. Did you exceed computer. your limit? Oh, okay. I'm not. It's Sue John's computer, and he's not logged in the medium. I do. So, I do remember. Well, actually, I, I I do remember the first one from this link. So, uh, it, it's actually this is actually really good if anybody's doing a Python interview because I get I'd say probably eighty percent of Python interviews this comes up, and it's amazing how people get it wrong. The arguments, static arguments. It's so shocking. So people don't realize that in Python, when you import a module, that's Everything in that module, that Py file, that's it runs at that point, at the point of import. Mm -hmm. So uh, any code that you have in there, you know, you don't have to have code in a function. It could just be sort of loose by itself. That'll run. And then also the function definitions itself, they run. So the, the actual defining of the function, class definitions themselves, you know, when classes are being defined, that's actually the class running, essentially, the fact that mm -hmm. it's getting defined. Well. If you have a function or a method that has a, a default, uh, an argument that has a default value, that only happen that evaluation happens at import time when the, the method or the function is defined. So mm -hmm. if that default value is mutable, you can see where I'm going with this, right? Yep. So what's a very common mistake is, and I totally made this mistake, uh, I don't know, at least ten times. So is to have uh, a default, let's say you have a, an argument that takes a list, right? Well, mm -hmm. you know, by default, you want your list to be empty so that you make your default value an empty list. Well, shocker of all shockers, that argument is mutable. So, <laughs> so when you, yeah, so at any point in time, if you change that list, it, it, it then becomes the value that, the new default value of that argument. So, you, you can potentially really mess yourself up there. So that's why in Python, it's really weird to see, but you know, if you have a, an argument that has a default value of none, that's very common to see. That's like, a, uh, that means that, uh, well, I really wanted it, this to be an empty list. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to write a little bit extra code around it. But here's, uh, here's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Keep no, going. that's it, go ahead. So I, I have the actual article here. So let me bring up, or, or I should say I have it locally on my phone, but I'm doing a little bit of Google magic. So here we go. Here's another, here's another post. And I'm sure this is like one of the most popular, like write a blog post on Python uh, articles, but uh, floramon.dev has a blog article on this. So for example, um, th this I think was maybe the other one, but is this the same one? This is different. This is not the import. This is a, an arguments thing. Default arguments. Was that the one you were talking about? Oh, that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's exactly the same thing. So yeah. visualizing it, you have a, a function yeah. out there, and it has a, an input parameter. The default is an empty array, but the thing is it was initialized once with an empty array. And let's say you just append to it because you initialized, quote, unquote, an empty array. Now, all of a sudden, if you call it two or three or four times, all of a sudden, you keep getting more data in your array because it doesn't reinitialize it. So there's your example. Yeah. It behaves completely differently than any other language. Yeah, yeah. That, that is odd. Yeah, it is. Really and, you know, if you, yeah, if you have a decent linter, it'll catch it. But I mean, uh, that's like that's, totally not what I would, you know, the what are the, the principle of least surprise or whatever it is, totally the opposite of that. Exactly. 
principle of Monty Python based surprise. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in this case, you would say inputs equal none, and then you would check for none. Good. Yeah, in, right. In the body of the function. More no, sane. Yeah. The other ones that are in this article, if you have medium, you can uh, use the article we're pointing to uh, in the original post, but uh, not a number, non-reflexivity. So apparently not a number is not not a number. Maybe yeah, you know but I don't one? think that's unique to Python. That's, that's not like, unique to Python, yeah. That's like JavaScript with, with, with that yeah. kind of thing too, not a number and, you know, all sorts of other fun things. All right. Late binding closures is another one they come up with. Uh, so let's see. Uh, late binding causes all the functions to assume a value from the last iteration because closer in which all the functions are defined in is closed. Never mind. I'm not going to bother reading it because I'm reading it on phone. Anyway, you could take a look at that and say, wow, uh, you might not know all of the way Python functions. All right. I'm going to try to put something in for Su uh, Sujin now. Uh, Kubernetes or Kubernetes or Kubernetes. I don't know what you want to call them. Here we go. Um, shining a light on the Kubernetes, a user experience with headlamp. So, I, so I guess this is a couple things. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't really used Kubernetes in anger yet. I've only started researching it a little bit. A lot of our projects are starting to use it now. A lot of clients use it. Um, I always like learning things on the command line first, but apparently there are a number of UIs out for Kubernetes, Kubernetes Dash, um, Lens apparently is a very popular one. And then um, this new one just released called Headlamp and kind of curious one, you know, viewers or anyone, you guys, have you used any of the Kubernetes UIs? Are they worth it? Are they helpful at all? I could see maybe it being useful at larger companies, but kind of curious. Uh, so this is a, this is apparently like, I, I guess the guy was not happy with what was out there. He wanted something open source and modular. And there's like a number of other criteria that he mentioned um, on there. Actually, let me take a look at it. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. like, I don't have it in front of me. So um, headlamp is one, right? That's, that's the... Yeah. Right, it's not tied to a specific Kubernetes distro, um, modern user interface, um, et cetera, et cetera, multi-cluster. Apparently not all of them are multi-cluster aware. Oh, okay. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I could see the value in something like this, but not if you don't know how it actually works. Like, if, I mean, if you're using Terraform and, and standing up stuff with Kubernetes, you, you kind of have to know how things work and what are all the pieces and how to stand them up. If you were just going to click through a UI and do things, I'd be afraid that you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes, but once mm. you know how things work, it could be pretty powerful to use something like this. So, I mean, I don't know, do you, you know, Eric, in your experience or, or interaction with people that are using Kubernetes yourself, have you seen people use any higher level tooling around it? Uh, so I, I've experienced with OpenShift's uh, Kubernetes implementation and it hides everything, which I agree with you is, is mm. generally not, not a good thing. Uh, I'm about to dive into EKS, which is Amazon's Kubernetes implementation, okay. um, and and I'm just I'm I'm curious myself to to learn how different it might be um, to a vanilla you know Kubernetes cluster uh, Kubernetes implementation. So um, and theoretically, you know, because it supports you know EKS, whatever the some recent Kubernetes API spec. Uh, theoretically, any of these tools can be used with that. So I, I'd be curious to see. Uh -huh. um, but I, I'm all, I also want to know, like, I, maybe I'll try and track down some numbers. What are the popular EKS or not popular Kubernetes distros out there? How many people are using, you know, the Azure implementation versus the AWS implementation? 
or the GCE implementation versus, you know, all these other companies that are trying to make a go, um, like OpenShift and all those other guys. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I know that what I, was, I only have experience in the ECS, um, which is the, the non-Kubernetes Docker implementation on AWS. And it's, you know, it's got a reasonable console. I wouldn't say I'm a production tuning person for it, but it, it seems like it's pretty complete, you know, in terms of being able to monitor the usage and what it's doing and how, how it's balancing load and things like that across the different clusters. It seems pretty useful, but fair number of clicks to get some things done, but, it, you know, we'll give you some stats, so... I'm curious yeah. what EC, EKS looks like. I mean, to me, the console is almost irrelevant, like whatever the UI experience is, because I don't know, like, have you ever heard this um, analogy? Like the US Navy designs their submarines a specific way. Have you heard this before? No, go like, for it. You can, in theory, you could completely automate most of the operations on a submarine, but they deliberately make everything very manual. Uh -huh. Because when, some, when something goes wrong in a crisis situation, you have to know how everything works, right? Yeah. You have to know what valves to turn. You have to like all the stuff that can be automated, they deliberately do not. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like as a software developer, I want to think the same way. Like I, I want to know what are the API calls I have to make to do this? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, where are these, where are these, where is this being logged really? You know, all this yeah. sort of stuff. So, so, you know, if, if I, if I do spend a little more time uh, writing a little bit of my own tooling and understanding these APIs and just avoiding the consoles if I can, uh, I, I, I do like to do that. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like being an instrument rated pilot, right? I mean, if you want a pilot that can is allowed to fly through bad weather and things like that, they have to get instrument rated, which I think is a lot harder than not being an instrument rated pilot. So learning the, the servicing APIs and the monitoring APIs in AWS for EKS is more important to you then. So at least you can put together whatever metrics you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, things will go wrong and you need to understand. Of course. Yeah. You know, you need to get at things that aren't exposed via the UI. Yep. Yep. All right. Cool. Well, that's our list of news articles for the week. I think that's everything. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I'd like to thank Eric for coming on and uh, putting up with my haphazard approach to things today. Sorry. Sujan, I can oh, give you your could, laptop if, now. If I could ask Eric, Eric a quick question, just yeah. at a high level, you know, you're, you're back into doing Golang development. So oh, just, yeah, of course. Yeah. Microservices, I'm kind of just curious to hear your thoughts on Go and, and microservice development. And, like, are there a lot of libraries out of the box available now? To do the oh, thing yeah. you need to do with Go, okay. Uh, it's like a marriage made in heaven. It's oh, yeah. like the GoLang is is uh, probably it's just it's just a great story for writing microservices. Now, I mean, the question, the story really should be: Should you write that microservice? And more often than not, I think the answer is no. That's a different <laughs> problem. Um, you know, so I think in a lot of these GoLang shops, you see this crazy proliferation and scoping issues with these microservices. But that aside, uh, you know, so we're, we're, we're happen to be using uh, one of the, the grandfather, I think, of Golang microservice toolkits called GoKit. Um, there's other ones that are out there. It's a little bit heavyweight, but uh, it gets the job done and it's great. And, you know, with Go, it's great. I mean, it's, they, they fixed their dependency story. Go modules fixes a lot of things. So that whole mess is gone. Um, you know, performance is great. It's nice just compiling to a native, you know, you can't beat that. Um, so yeah, it's nice. So you went away from Go for how long would you say? A year? Oh, more. Yeah, a couple Two years. years. So see, here's the deal, right? You go away from Go, you come back and it's better. You go away from SBAs yeah. and you come back, you're like, what? So there you go. Yeah, that didn't happen with JavaScript. <laughs> it just made me angry. 
<laughs> yeah. Sounds like it's it's yeah. matured a lot and it's a great time to jump back in, huh? Well, the thing about Go that I realized it's a little bit like Python in that the developers of Go, they're I'm guessing they're mostly older <laughs> or they trend a little bit older than the JavaScript guys uh, and gals. So, so they've hurt themselves enough in the past that they want to do well, good things. I think they're more practical mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't spend, if you notice in Go, they don't really care about immutability. They don't care. I mean, they, they don't, you know, it's not really functional. It's not at all functional. It's the opposite of functional. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's just, they're just very, very practical. You know, what can we do to get stuff to, for you to be able to build what you need to build quickly and efficiently and simply? You know, it's not sexy. It's not quote unquote fun. It just works. It's not opinionated, would you say? It's more pragmatic? It's opinionated in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the error handling story is very opinionated. People tend okay. to don't like that, or a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. It's it's like it's 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 a, it's an obvious evolution from C, right? So if you think of the mindset of a your average uh, C developer, um, you just sort of expand that, and that, that's what I think of, of Go. So that and Rust are kind of playing a little bit in the same space. Is that correct? Would you say? Yeah, except Rust has ten times the learning curve. Mm -hmm. The 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 concepts behind Rust are, are they they make so much sense. Yeah. Right. Like, why should you have GC? Why do you need GC? Shouldn't you just keep track of, you know, who's supposed to own what when and get rid of it when you need to? I mean, that to me is the purest thing you can do. But then figuring out how to get it to work, you know, I'm sure if I spent, you know, enough time, I could get started on it. But, right. uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get started on a Rust project at a client. You know what I mean? It's just not fair to anybody. So, but Go is more approachable. Go is more approachable. It's not as embeddable, you know, and it has GC, so you have, you have to contend with the usual stuff that you can do with GC. You have pauses to worry about and, you know, tuning a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. But, but yeah. Not to put you on the spot, but I guess I'm curious to look at the inverse side. So, or the converse, what would you not use it for? But Go? Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it takes a little more discipline. In, um, so it depends on, I, I guess, the expertise of your, the developers that are involved. So if, you have, if you're a big organization and you have a whole range of developers, uh, I'd be really careful who you gave go to. Just because, you know, it's, it's easy to create race conditions. It's easy to, um, you know, pass values around when you should be passing pointers around, stuff like that. Like, the, it's a little more, you have to think a little more like a C developer. It's safer okay. than C for sure. Uh, definitely safer than C, but you, you do need to think about it a little more, what you're doing. Cool. Awesome. All right, Eric, thank you for that. I'm sorry, I buried your, your lead there because <laughs> we were going to talk about that and I just was looking at the time more than anything. So thank you for your input on Go. Sure. And we, we definitely like to hear as you keep working on that and also Kubernetes, if you want to stop back again and talk about, let me you know, some of the learnings that you have uh, around like dashboards and management and scaling and things like that. It'd be great. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's uh, the tech chat Tuesday for today. Uh, we appreciate you uh, attending. Uh, and again, leave feedback for us at, at TechCast or email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll see you next time. Take care.